Well, good morning. Good morning. We're, uh, we're, we're finally getting some snow out there. It's been a, it's been a long time. So, uh, you know, you like snow. You like snow. You like snow. All right, turn your scripture to Matthew 5. Before I do that, next week we're doing the, uh, the fellowship hour after the morning worship service. So those of you who are in the... Those of you who are over there on the other side, that will be set up differently, so you're going to have to join us. You're going to have to join us here in the, in the sanctuary. So be aware of that. And while I'm here, before I begin here, I want to thank Galen for handling things last week for me. I really deeply appreciated it. I, I was sharing with somebody, but I didn't know I was as tired as I was. But just being home for a, a week... Uh, was, was good, and I got an opportunity just to sit and to be with uh, Mary and, uh, and just relax. So I want to be in Matthew 5, and I'm also going to be in Hebrews 11, so you want to take your, I don't know what they call these things, these doohickeys, you know, markers, so take that and put it in uh, Hebrews 11, because I'm going to jump to that uh, after I uh, talk a little bit about Matthew 5, and chapter 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 20 is where I want to be. Um, and also while I'm here, I wanted to thank the, the, the people who were singing. Um, I don't really think, you know, we realize the sacrifice of being here week after week after week, uh, it, early in the morning and getting ready for worship. And I want you to know that you are appreciated in what you do and the time that you spend and the excellence with which you do it. So... All right, I want to be in Matthew 5 and verse 20. So if you'd stand together for the reading of God's word, let's honor him in that way. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then I'm going to um, uh, expand on that next week. So I want to stop right there, and, and because, go ahead and sit down. Because um, as I was working on this, you know, I was telling someone my thoughts and where I wanted to go morphed. And so I, I'm, I'm use, using this passage of Scripture for the truth that's there to speak to a deeper and stronger truth. And then next week I'm going to come back and I'm going to expound on that, that subject and some others that, that follow in the Scripture right after that. So the last time I was in the pulpit was a, was a week or so ago. And I, I began by asking the question, which is the question that non-Christian people ask all the time uh, as they look at the Christian church and they ask, why is it that so many people who say they believe in Jesus don't have Jesus' character? Remember that question? Why is that? And what, what's going on there? And I said that my understanding of that, and I believe this, my understanding of that is if you want uh, beliefs to produce character in a person's life, they have to be driven into your heart by spirit spiritual principles. 
spiritual disciplines. And they've, they're driven into your heart so that they can engage the whole person. And that was my response to that as I thought about it. Regular, continuous Christian practices of how we live our lives. And I think that's the bridge that ignites belief and cements belief in our lives. And we'll deal with those disciplines in the weeks to come a little bit more. I, someone said it was three sermons. When have I ever done three sermons? That'll be, it'll be a little bit more than that as we, we, uh, we, we look at that. But uh, we're going to deal with uh, a truth this morning, one of these disciplines that is foundational and uh, more in the weeks to come. That's all I'll say about that. So the Sermon on the Mount is where we find ourselves in the fifth chapter of Matthew is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a gift given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what it says. That's what the Lord says to us. So when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, we surrender his life to his power, you change. You change. Christianity is about nothing if it's not about change in life. Jesus says in verse 20 that we read, that if you have come into the kingdom of God, the quality of your character of who you are is so changed, so, so different, that it far exceeds the character of the scribes and the teachers and the religious leaders. Now, what in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? And that leads me to say, we, as we explore these Christian principles over the next several weeks, we have to deal, first of all, with foundational truth. The foundational truth of what Scripture says to us about who God is. You know, before I, before I do this, let's just, let's just pray. All right, Father, we're thankful for your word, for the richness of it, for the, for the truth that's there, that speaks to our hearts, that just expands over time. And we say, you know, the, the, the time when we came to Jesus that we've sung about this morning, those times where the truth explodes in our mind and our heart, and we say, yeah, that, that, that's, that's real. Uh, just over time, as we've come to know you, as we've come to know your followers, uh, that love that we have has only... Uh, become more intense and more real. And as we look at scriptures, Father, we pray that you take this, even that what we share today, and let it, let it uh, marinate in our hearts uh, to the end that you're glorified by who we are and the character that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I noticed in a recent article that, that parents are uh, as they're watching their children, are more and more concerned that their children are growing up with no morals. And uh, not knowing the difference between right and wrong. And the article went on to say that this has spawned some people who are moral educators that are kind of popping up in different cities and communities, moral educators of teaching the, the right and wrong. And their job is to do seminars and to train parents to teach their children moral values. So the, the backstory of this is that schools really, really don't want to deal with the teaching of morality. I mean, it's not what they do. They, they don't like the M word, morality. The morality has that 
connotation to it. When you talk about morality, people get visions of repression or people get visions of, of a narrowness when you start talking about morality because moral people are viewed as repressive. Moral people are viewed as narrow. They're, they're restrictive. And so we don't like restrictions on us. And we don't, so we don't want to use the M word. It's not a, not a good thing. However, these seminars that are popping up all over talk about how to develop character. They talk about how to develop values that are not, really not based on God and really not based on any kind of religion or kingdom principles. Because we don't want to be fanatics. We don't want to, we don't, we, don't, we don't like that word fanatical. We don't want to be fanatical. We don't want to be like the Pharisees, right? That's not a good thing. And we, we look at that as, we don't like them. And because they're, they're too moral, they're too religious, they're too whatever you call that. You know, right? We don't, we don't like that. And we don't want our kids to be like that. We want our kids to be kind of moral. Kind of moral. Now that's going to fail for a couple of reasons. For a couple of reasons. First, because people of divergent backgrounds throughout history, however you view this, uh, different beliefs, different backgrounds, uh, and I can name some of those philosophical thinkers for you. Dutowski, um, Tolstoy, Darwin, uh, Marx, Nietzsche, they've all said, and these are people who, who don't care about religion, don't care about God, they've all said, you can't have morality without religion. You can't have morality without religion. It can't be done. And here's a quote from, from uh, who is it, Dutowski. He says, if there is no God, everything is permitted. And that's true. If there's no God, everything, whatever you want to do, it's permitted. It's permitted. So if you've read any of these guys that I just mentioned and the things that they've wrote, if you've studied any philosophy at all, uh, which takes me way back, and uh, they, they have significantly moved away from Christianity. They're not interested in Christianity at all. And they've planted seeds in culture, seeds that have borne fruit. They've planted seeds of confusion that have reached into our day and into our lives. Uh, because what is taught in the classrooms today is on the streets tomorrow. That's truth. That's truth. What people believe, how they act, what they do. I have a book that I picked up. It was about a year and a half ago, and I didn't read it right away. I had other things I was doing, but I started to look at it. It's by Jeremiah Johnson, entitled Unimaginable. And what would our world look like without Christianity? And that, that was what the theme of the book was, as he kind of talked about that. It was a wake-up call, in the words of, of Sheila Wash, to, quote, a world that refuses to see the impact of the life of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to the church that has too often forgot who we are and what we believe. Who we are and what we believe. So Johnson, in this book, traces the history of unbelief. Uh, Nietzsche, you know that guy, God is dead. You remember those, those back there? God is dead. That was a big thing in the church for a while that people were talking about. But Nietzsche was the one that initiated that, which spawned the movie, you know, God's not dead. And so we had all these movies and things that were responding to that. But Nietzsche not only did not believe in God, he hated Christianity. He hated Christianity, hated the church, just hated it. 
And uh, he, and I'll give you a quote of his, and we'll put it on the screen here. Some men are superior to others. Men are superior to women. Now, there's some things people are right on. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get in real trouble. <laughs> Maybe it's too late to back away. The most advanced humans, he said, now look what, what he's saying here, breed in such a way as to advance humanity, while less advanced humans should be forced into slavery. The great majority of people have no right to exist. Now think about this philosophy of life. He advocated the destruction of most of humanity. Those destroyed included physical, mentally handicapped. Get rid of them. They're of no, no use to our society. It's no surprise. It's no surprise that a disciple of Nietzsche was a guy by the name of Adolf. And he leaned on this philosophy and this belief and the seeds were planted and he wrote what? Mein Kampf. His whole thoughts about life itself, my struggles is what it means. It had a nightmarish impact on Germany and on the world. Seeds of thought. Seeds of thought. It ushered in fascism, it ushered in communism, a culture of death. I mean, it's what it was. It was a culture of death. And that made the, the whole thing of the 20th century, it was appalling what happened in the 20th century. But the seeds were planted in education, in the hearts of people. Today, and, I, and I'm going to be a little political here, why left-leaning academics, elites, are drooling over these ideologies is puzzling. It's puzzling. Why? Why, why, why? Why is this so attractive? Why the, the reluctance even to face up to what has happened in history, what history records for us as a people. The facts are staggering. They're staggering. Conservative estimates, and from years ago, this, this isn't even brought up to date, is under communistic regimes, fascist regimes, those results even that were compilated some 15, 20 years ago. Today, they said that as many as a million people have died under communistic regimes. Millions of people. So today, we see a reemergence of some of these thoughts. Why? Why? Why is this so attractive? Why? And now, now you, you, I'm going to get back to where I am in Scripture here because it's the Scripture there that spawned my thinking on this and what I wanted to do with it. So day, today we see a reemergence of those thoughts and it, it, it all speaks to the cheapness of life. The cheapness of life. How life is viewed by people. Uh, abortion on demand at any time, including partial birth. Tony Dungy gets slammed just recently because he believes in life. He believes in life. 
the unborn child. Outrage, outrage, because he's pro-life. He believes in life, not the death culture. You know? um, assisted suicide. We're hearing more about that now. Why? Cheapness of life. Assisted suicide. At any age, for any reason. Dr. Kevorkian's back. You know, if you remember that. The dehumanizing of humanity. The lumping togethers of people. We like this, we, we don't like this group. We like the, we, all of that kind of stuff. It's, the, it's puzzling to me, the, the attraction to this. The attraction to this. Why not embrace the philosophy of Jesus? Why not embrace Christianity, whose followers made the world a better place? You know what, I'm going I'm to get into that just a little bit for you. Made the world a better place. Men and women who fought for education, fought for literacy, fought for science and medicine, for the arts, for equal rights, who fought for these things to make a world a better place to live, who value life, who value all life, human dignity. The evidence for that is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. A couple of truths that I want to share with you that I took from the inter- Disciplinary Journal of Research on Religion. First of all, there are about 350,000 churches in America today. Congregations in the United States. The vast majority serve as a safety net for those who are in need. Over 70 million Americans each year are helped and fueled by $20 billion. The church reaching out and helping people and ministering to people. Over 60% of the 46,000 agencies, now this isn't the church, this is agencies that are spawned from the church, working with food banks, they're faith-based. They're faith-based. Simply put, many of America today would starve without the church, without what the church is doing to feed people. Disasters. And some of you were involved in this some years ago with Katrina, right? Now, some of you, and I know Sean and Kathy, some of you guys went down there and you helped and you, you spent your week down there working with people and helping people. And they, they say that the church base there swarmed that area. More so than what the government did, more so than what any other agency, but the church showed up. 64% of that that happened in Katrina was church-based, where God's people ran to that and helped that whole area become, this was strong. This was the church in action. Down at the border right now, church-based, they're all over the place trying to help with that, trying to feed people, trying to do what they can do to minister to the humanity that's pouring across the border that needs help. According to the Grimm study, and I just quote what it says here, religion, $1.2 trillion is more than a global earnings of Apple and Microsoft together. That kind of aid that's going out into the world. A survey of the 50 largest U.S. charities, 24 of those are faith-based. They're faith-based. Baylor University reports that the total current savings to the United States government, to who we are as a people, the United States, 
The U.S. is from America's religiosity. $2.6 trillion a year goes out to help people from the church, the people of Jesus. The church is also filling the, the mental health areas that need help in our country, and the challenges are there. Education, edu- you kidding me? Education, the church has always been in the forefront of that, historically, of, of, of churches established the first universities in Europe and in the United States. They're faith-based. They started by the people of God, thinking to educate people. Hospitals, they're all over the place. The church has formed all over the South. You see Baptist hospitals and all of that. You see the, 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 the Catholic hospitals, St. Joe's and St. Luke's and the Lutheran and so on and so on and so on. Just one of these operates 647 hospitals, 1,600 facilities of care for people, 156 clinics to those who are of low income. Just one. Just one. What if the faith-based providers vanished? What if it vanished? Our own church. And we're, we're, we're a pebble, you know, in this. We support 27 different agencies that are reaching out into communities through our mission giving and people that we're supporting. And they're ministering to people that we can't get to. They're ministering to people in Detroit. They're ministering to people in, in Pontiac. They're ministering across the world. 27 different agencies that we support as individuals. Different faith-based orgs. The Christian school that we have here at the church. 100 children are here each day in this church that teachers are speaking into the things of Christ in their lives and doing that. Dick and Dora May, how many different mission trips have they been? This is just the two couples in our congregation, 50 mission trips with medical supplies, medical help in every area of the, of the continent. And he's going again on another one. So they're there, they're, they're ministering to people, caring for people. I had the privilege, and many of you had the privilege of going on one of these because they created a component so that lay people like myself that have no medical experience can go and participate and be a part of this. So all of these things to deliver care, health care to people and other... Why do this? Why care? Why, why, why? Why should we even be involved in this? Candy, who, who's, who was just home recently, she's over on the other part of the state working with a prison ministry. Who cares about those losers coming out of prison? Who cares? What do we even care? What happens to them? She's starting a whole ministry over there working with that in the prison system. The newest one that we have, and I put it up, there's Andy this past week that went out and he was at the hospital again with, with, uh, with his daughter. The newest uh, uh, support that we have, mission that we support, a special needs community. Who cares? You know, Nietzsche says get rid of these people. They're of no use to society. Brielle is of no use to society. It's just a drag. Cost us money. Why even do that? And Jesus says, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, what? You've done it to me. That's what Christianity says. Everybody's important. Everybody has value. Everybody has value. 
Why do Christians care so much? And we do. Why do we? But, but it doesn't get out. People, people don't look at what really is happening. They just, ah, somebody told me this. Baloney. Baloney. The impact of the church has been astronomical in the lives of people. So much is foundational. And the foundation of that is, and it actually comes from, the, it, 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 it's included, inherent in the passage of Scripture that we read is, and that is, first, because we believe God is. We believe God is. Secondly, we believe in a humanity that he created in the image of God. God is and he created in the image of God. So people have been created to have this image of God. So when Jesus said, when asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? What was it? What did he say? He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. You do this. Love God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. There's a vertical love, love God, foundational. And then there's the horizontal, love people. Love God, love people. It's the cross. Love God, love people. Love people. My goodness, we're such a terrible bunch of people. <laughs> we love God and we love people. We're terrible. We're terrible. But to believe all this nonsense, and it's what it is, it's nonsense. You have to get rid of Christianity. Christians, you're a problem. You're a problem. Nietzsche was the son of a Lutheran minister. And here's what he said about the church. He says, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one enormous and innermost perversion, the greatest moral blemish on mankind. Christianity, the moral blemish on mankind. I regard Christianity as the most seductive lie that ever existed. So the very first thing, the very first thing that is needed is belief in God. Belief in God, that God is. If you don't have the foundational belief in God, all bets are off. All bets are off. So do you believe in God? Is God real to you? Is God real to you? Hebrews 11, I want to go there. So jump over to Hebrews 11. He says in Hebrews 11, now listen to me, that's why I'm asking the question, which is why I'm posing it again this morning. This is basic, foundational to who we are. Anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists. That's true, right? I mean, it's common sense. Anyone who believes in him must first believe that he exists. If he exists, then the question becomes from that, has he revealed himself? If he exists, has he revealed himself? Has he spoken to this world that he created? And we believe he has spoken to us in his son, Jesus, and through his word, which is the scriptures. He has spoken to us. You see, if there's no God, then, then, then all we have is a matter of taste. If there's no God, who cares? Who cares? 
don't care what you have to say. I, I got my own, what I, what I think here. It becomes a matter of taste. You, you can't talk about immorality. You can't say, I, you can say, I prefer this, or I prefer that. I like, I don't, you know, you can say that, but you can't talk about immorality at all because there's no God. There's no ultimate truth. Whatever you decide in your little brain, whatever you want to do with your life. So, again, if there's no God, everything's a matter of taste. Now think about it, it's true. First, here in this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, God is implied. How is he implied? Well, he takes them back to Exodus. Hold, hold on here, I'm going to come back to 11 here. He lays down a principle of relationships. And, and that's what I want to talk about next week, relationships, Christian relationships, how we treat one another and what we do. He says, you shall not murder. What, what does that mean, you shall not murder? And why does he say it? Why he says it is because Debbie is created in the image of God. Brian is created in the image of God. Gary's created in the image of God. Peter's created in the image of God. They're created in the image. You shall not murder because of the image of God. If you're, if you're murdering, you're murdering someone who God created and it was in his image. So four words that are used in the English, you shall not murder. There are two words in, in the Hebrew, which actually, you know, people talk about the shortest verse in the Bible. In the Hebrew, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. But it has huge implications. It has astronomical, just, just that statement that we read, you shall not, it has unbelievable ramifications to it. Foundationally, God's command calls us to respect all human life. Respect all people because they're all created in the image of God. So we have respect for people and we care for people. See, we, we do not only believe in God vertically, we believe that we were created and we bear the image of God horizontally so we value people. And that's why all of these things that I read about that we're doing, that the church is doing in the world and around the world, and the money that's spent and the money that you give, that's why that means something. Because we value people. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And we take that seriously. We value all people. Regard all human beings as with the utmost esteem as image bearers. They're image bearers of God. This includes the poor, the unborn, the elderly, the infirmed, black, white, gay, uh, straight, trans. Whether or not they're able to contribute to society or not. Whether or not they are, have a so-called quality of life. We consider all human life sacred. Because every one of us has been created in the image of God. Every one of us is created in the image of God. We have an unseen foundation. An unseen foundation. A personal relationship that manifests itself in a love for people and good deeds. Now, Lloyd-Jones, you know I like Lloyd-Jones. I talk about him all the time. He is by far my, my, my favorite read and uh, what he has to say. But he talked about when he was converted. And I want to share that with you this morning just to, so we 
we see where I'm coming from and why this is so important. He talked about the fact that he was a pretty nominal Christian. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, he had a, a, a rational, I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant mind. He had a rational belief in God. It all made sense, but he didn't have the personal encounter. This is his words. didn't have the personal encounter with God. So he was a young physician in London when he was growing up, and he was, he was head over tail above others in his field. And he was on the rise very quickly to be one of the most prominent surgeons in London. He had a good friend of his who was 20 years his superior that was already there, who had already reached that pinnacle and was, was just renowned throughout, throughout London. And he thought to himself, he said this, and I'm quoting him, if I make it to the top, I'm going to have money, I'm going to have status, I'm going to have everything I want. I'm going to have everything I want. Now his friend who was 20 years his superior, who had already reached that pinnacle, top of his medical profession, who Lloyd-Jones looked at him as, as, uh, uh, with great admiration. <laughs> this is the guy, I, I, I like him, I mean, he's made it. He's made it. I want to follow him. Want, suddenly, suddenly this guy has a big tragedy in his life. A woman that he was courting and was engaged to, wanting to marry, all of a sudden, suddenly gets ill and dies. And she's gone from his life. This doctor, after this woman dies, comes to Lloyd-Jones because they had gotten a friendship. He comes to his home and he sits down by the fireplace. And he said to Jones, he said, I think I'm just going to sit and not talk right now. For two hours... For two hours, he stared at the fire, never said a word. He was so despondent, so tore up. He didn't even look up. He just stared at the fire. And Jones didn't have a problem with that. He knew he was despondent. He knew he was struggling with all this. Uh, but he watched as the man looked at the fire. And then he said this. It shook me. To my foundations. It shook me to my foundations. He said, I saw in that the vanity of all human greatness. I realized all the success in the world, all the status in the world, all the education, all the money is insufficient to face life. For whatever reason, suddenly at that moment, Lloyd-Jones heard the call of God in his life. Instead of just having a rational faith now, which he did, and which he made public, he said, my faith began to become personal. God became real. God became real. So Lloyd-Jones is saying, and the scripture is saying to us this morning, that it's not enough just to believe in a kind of general way. Oh, this makes sense. I, and I, I, I think there's a God. No, no, no. There's a call. There's a call that comes into your life. There has to be a sense that God is coming to you, to you, to who you are, into your life, and personally saying to you, I want you, Adam, to follow me. 
I want you, Steve, to follow me. I want you, Bill, to follow me. I want you to follow me. What does that feel like? What does that feel like? When that call comes from God, you know? You know what that is? It's the big either or. It's the big either or in life. Suddenly, it presses in on your spirit. It presses in on who you are. Either there's no God and everything is meaningless, or there is a God. And if there is a God, then nothing is more important than my relationship to Him. Nothing. It's either or. It's extreme. And suddenly, you realize there is no other place you, you can stand with integrity. That's what the world wants to see in us. That's what others want to see in believers. The integrity of what we say we believe and who we are as Christian people. And if there is a Jesus who came into this world, who gave himself utterly for me, without me giving myself utterly to him, and suddenly you realize it's all or nothing, Now be careful. Be careful. It doesn't have to happen dramatically. I'll tell you a story about, you you know the guy C. Everett Koop, who was the Surgeon General of America for a number of years. But he lived in Philadelphia, not far from where I was in Philadelphia when I was there years ago. But he lived in Philadelphia and his wife would always go to church and he didn't want to go and she would drag him off. That's what he'd say. She dragged me off to church all the time. And uh, so he got dragged off to church and he basically went to please his wife. A lot of guys like that. <laughs> basically went to keep her quiet, you know, and he'd go along with her to whatever. And a year later, after going to church, he realized he had become a Christian. Now think about this. He couldn't for the life of him think about when it happened. <laughs> when did it happen? But he realized he believed. He, I mean, he really, really believed that. He didn't recall the day. He didn't recall the month. He realized that the rational had now become personal in his life. And he, but he couldn't remember when it happened. Other times, it's very specific. For Lloyd-Jones, it was very specific. You know, he watched this man at the fire. He watched what happened to this guy. He's watching him. He's watching him. He's looking in the fire for two hours, and he suddenly realized, I need God. Very specific. He knows the time. He knows who it was. He's very specific. But the, 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 the thing about both of those is your faith and your belief in God is foundational. Before we can even talk about Christian disciplines, there has to be a foundation to that of who we are as Christian people. What do I mean by that? Look at the eighth verse. If you're in Hebrews 11, I finally got there. Thank you. He says, now watch, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. The old King James puts it like this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to get out to a place, he should later receive, obeyed and went out not knowing whether he went. Get out. And he went. Get out. And he went, not knowing where he went. 
So once Abraham gets this call, which happened back in Genesis chapter 12, you remember, he's a believer now, right? Right, he's a believer. He got a call from God, so he's a believer. Everything's fine. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Everything is just getting started. Everything's just starting in his life. Let me tell you how the rest of his life goes. God says, get out. And he says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later, just get out. Go, go, go. So he arrives and God says, settle down. And he says, well, when? He says, I'll tell you later, just wander around. Just do it, do it. So God says, "Um, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, how? How how are you going to do that? I'm 99 years old. My wife is 90 years old. And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. Just wait. And then finally God says to Abraham, take your son that you just dearly love, that's the apple of your eye, go up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later, just go. Just go. Let me tell you what's going on here. Abraham came to see what Hebrews 11.10 talks about, he, this world has no foundations. This world has no foundations for you. He was looking for a city with foundations. This world has no foundations. You know that? You don't, you don't have to listen to me. Talk to a physicist. Talk to a physicist. They'll tell you that. The second law of thermodynamics Everything is winding down. Everything is unraveling. Everything in this world is burning up. That's why your cars are rusting. It's, it's just, just oxidation. Everything's burning up. Everything. What that means is that the foundation of your life, your family, you say, oh, it's family, it's the family, it's my family. They're leaving you. They're leaving you. My mom and dad are gone. And if you live long enough, they'll all leave you. If you build your life on your looks, you know what? Right now, you're wrinkling. Sorry. You're wrinkling. (laughs) The world has no foundations. There's no intellectual foundations. It keeps changing all the time from age to age. There's no psychological foundations. There's no emotional foundations. There's no physical foundations. Over and over and over again, you're going to come into a crisis in which to obey God means to lose something that you ordinarily build your life upon and walk away from it and trust God. You trust God. Go. Do this. Do, okay, Lord. Okay. Why does God do that? Why does God do that? Because we build our lives on things that are going away. They're called sand in Scripture. This is sand. You're building your, your, your house on sand. Build your house on a rock. Something that lasts forever. Everything else is passing away. This world is passing away. Don't we believe that? You know? God is saying, don't build your life here. This has no foundation. This is sand. Don't put the center of your life on that. Center your life on something that will last forever. 
forever. Shift the center of your life, the gravity of your life, away from anything in this world and come to me. That's the gospel. Come to me. Come to me. It's the only way you will become unshakable. There was a preacher years ago who put it like this. He said, you're on this little ball of rock called earth. You're spinning through space at a million miles an hour and someday under every person, every one of us, a trap door is going to open. We're going to fall off the earth. It's called death. Every one of us is called death. Underneath is either the everlasting arms of God or millions and millions of miles of nothingness. Do you think your PhD is going to help you? You think your family is going to help you? You think your spouse, your education, your bank account, your money? And then he said this. He says, either you're connected with God and everything is secure, no matter how chaotic your life looks, or you're not connected to God and nothing is secure, no matter how orderly your life looks. God is in the business of showing us that at at every point in our lives, to put him first means to walk away from something in this world that we're holding on to, which we're building our security on. Rational becomes personal. I have a personal relationship with God. You cross over this line and you connect to God, but then it's, it's not over. It's just beginning. It's just beginning. From then, it's a foundational thing in your life. It's what you build upon. It's what you strengthen your life on. It's the disciplines of the Christian life that begin the rest of your life. And it builds you into a person of faith. Into a person that can handle life. God is real to you. God is real to you. Is that where you're at? The question we started with is this, and I'm going to close. Why is it that so many people who say they believe in Jesus don't have his character? Here's where you start. Is God real to you? Has God called you? Follow me. Are you following him? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself, which we'll talk about next week as a foundational thing for us as Christian people. Everything flows out of that. All the law, all the prophets, everything flows out of that. Love God, love people, everything comes out of that and how we live our lives. So you start this journey, right? We start this journey, all of us. The first thing, foundational, believe God is, believe people are created in the image of God and act like it. Act like it. Act like it. Live it. Everything flows from that. All other Christian disciplines. I'm feeling good about following Jesus. 
I'm feeling good about this stuff. I'm watching everything. I look philosophically at things. I look at the world. I look at what's going on. I'm feeling good about where I'm at in Christ. I've been called. Has God spoken to your heart? Follow him. Follow him. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your truth in our lives. Thank you for your love. We're thankful for Jesus who came to reveal the Father and the heart of the Father of the great love you have for us. And you've seen the, the culture of death and you said, I came to bring life and I came to bring life more abundantly. Follow me, follow me. We pray that this morning for our lives, our Father, as your people, that we would just stand with Christ. The seeds of, of, of anger, the seeds of, of death, the seeds of division are all about us. And we need to stand with integrity about the things that we believe and who we believe and why we believe what we believe and reach out in love recognizing that all people are created in the image of God. This is our heart and this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.